Jared, what was that? That was different, wasn't it? I, I'm I'm scared. What what's going on here? <laughs> yes, for the first time, we are diving right into the episode. This is two guys and a franchise bringing you the Lord of the Rings. The extended edition. Not only are we going to be talking about Lord of the Rings, the extended edition, but we're going to be recording this episode in segments live after our shared rewatch. This is a first for two guys in a franchise. The stars aligned, the planets came into conjunction, and somehow two fathers of several children with career wives and busy lives were able to spend a weekend together binge-watching the entire extended edition of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. We didn't even tell our wives we were doing this. <laughs> no, we did not. We did not. <laughs> Jeremy's family is out of town, so we're, cra- we're crashing his living room for watching the trilogy. My family, my wife is working the whole weekend, and my children I'm allowing to run feral so that we can bring you live rewatch reactions to Lord of the Rings. In this episode, we're going to watch The Fellowship of the Ring and The Two Towers. But before we do that, we we thought we'd spend just a few minutes uh, chatting about our origin stories, our relationship to... The Lord of the Rings. Well, I will tell you, my love of Lord of the Rings has uh, has gone back to when I was a very, very, very little kid. And my dad had a friend that worked at Lionsgate. He was actually a sound editor for Lionsgate. So we had uh, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, the, the, the vocal track, along with the soundtrack on a cassette tape. And I would listen to that. And then we, we got the uh, animated version on uh-huh. VHS. I okay, remember that, it was, yeah. It was a copy of a copy. So <laughs> the quality wasn't great, but, you know, when you're five, six years old, you don't care about the quality of it. And then when they announced the films, back in the, the early, uh, early, well, was it 96, 97 that they were announcing the, the films? They, you know, it was it was supposed to be this big epic thing. I, I, of course, was just like, I have to see this in theaters, and I did. Uh, I watched I watched the first one um, with a, a good family friend. Uh, his name was Jeremy, and yeah. his mom, and uh, enjoyed it, loved it, loved it. And then uh, the second one I watched uh, actually in England. Uh, I had a girlfriend at the time. She was she was uh, living in England, and so uh, Boxing Day, the day after Christmas, we wow. went and saw saw the two, the towers. two towers. Yeah, in in theaters. And my experience with uh, with with British theaters is that uh, they they serve beer there. <laughs> <laughs> Other than that, it was really no different. Um, and then. Of course, uh, when when the the final one, Return of the King, came out, there was a special director's cut. I don't remember what theater it was at, but it was a director's cut. I walked out of the theater with one thought in my mind: is that I wish that this could go on forever. <laughs> and um, 
from that point, I realized, oh, wait a minute, I had never read the books. So <laughs> I set out to read the books and I've, I've read them at least once through completely on, on paper. And then I went through uh, and listened to it probably three or four times on, on Audible. Nice. So uh, I, I've, I've come to love uh, it even more so. So I, all right, pause for just a second. Okay. I'm a little confused. I thought when you said that your your dad's friend from Lionsgate provided you with audio tracks, I thought you were talking about like an audio version of the books. It no, was not it was, an audio it book. Was the what film. was it? it oh, was, the it audio was, tracks of, yeah. the, of the film, so, of the animated so, film. Yeah, it was It was the voice <laughs> actors, oh, uh, so fun. The, the direct cut, the, the vocal track. That's from so cool. From the, the film. Oh, that's so cool. So, um, so you came to Lord of the Rings... Media first and then books last. Yes, it was it was the opposite of how people normally do it. That, yeah, that but, is the opposite um, of how I came to it. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I have, can I say I'm weird? <laughs> my history, my history with Lord of the Rings is is the opposite direction insofar as I began with the books. I read I read the books the first time in middle school. So I want to say I was like heavy reading. I, yeah, well, you know, I'm a nerd from way back, <laughs> academic nerd from way back. But yeah, I want to say I read the books for the first time in like eighth grade, maybe even seventh grade. That's when I that's when I really I discovered epic fantasy novels mm. and and uh, and and really got into that. So I had read it in middle school. Then in high school, my 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 Lord of the Rings, the the story that always comes to mind for me is in high school. Many people can like name a high school or elementary school teacher who like you know inspired them or changed their lives or was really important to them. Yeah, yeah. Mr. Holmes was mine. He was the, our English lit teacher mm. in junior year of high school. I attended as, as I think I've mentioned before on the show. I've attended. I attended a Catholic all boys private high school. Uh, the big three, as I like to think of it: Catholic, private, and all boys. And so, uh, and Mr. Holmes was our junior year English teacher, and he would refer to everyone as scholar. So I was so, yeah, so he would walk in and he would say, all right, scholars, you know, and as someone came up to his desk or asked him a question, he'd be like, you know, scholar Jerry, what can I do for you? You know, scholar Jimmy or scholar or whatever. And that, that stuck with me. I really, I really enjoyed that. You know, it was, it was super geeky. That, that, um, that has a very Dead Poet Society feel to it yes, right there. Yes, yes. So, <laughs> so I remember distinctly in about the middle of the year, he, Mr. Holmes, assigned us a project, a research project, where we were to write an essay uh, after spending like a week in the library. So instead of going to our classroom for, for English class, we went to the library to do independent research to hmm. write an, a research paper. The homework then for while we were doing that research, our homework at the time was to read the Lord of the Rings trilogy. That was the book that was assigned for that chunk of that English class. And then while we were doing this independent research essay project, he he would then schedule individual interviews with each student to have conversation about the Lord of the Rings. And I remember distinctly that that because I had already read it a couple, you know, a few years prior, I was like, well, 
I know Lord of the Rings. Do I need to worry about this? And then my academic anxiety kicked in and I began to worry. Yeah, I probably should reread this because what if he asked me questions and I don't remember the right answers? So like a week before my interview date, <laughs> I began the Fellowship of the Rings. Then literally like the, the three nights before my interview, I literally like pulled all-nighters binge reading The Two Towers and The Return of the King because I was that concerned. But because I had just reread them and I love them, I was super excited to be having my conversation with Mr. Holmes. Mm -hmm. So during English class that day, uh, he was like, all right, Scholar Jerry, please join me over here in this study room. We can have our conversation. So I walk into this little study room. He closes the door. We sit down. He says, so, Scholar, tell me about uh, how did you like The Lord of the Rings? And I said, oh, I love The Lord of the Rings. This is actually the second time that I've read the whole trilogy, and I just love it. He goes, really? The second time, huh? And he says, so what are the... And then he, he names the name of a creature, whose name I can't remember off the top of my head right now. But he, he, he gives the name of a creature, and I said... Oh, yeah, that was the name of the insect that bothered the fellowship in the swamp and the fellowship of the rings at this place and that time. And he goes, that's exactly right. I'm giving you an A+. Plus. You can go back to your research. <laughs> now, think about that for a minute. So, so, on the one hand, so I paused. There was this long pregnant pause in which I warred within myself between, like, well, I want the A+. And yet at the same time, I just spent two nights binge reading these books that are now, we're not even going to talk about? We're, are, is completely irrelevant to my grade? I could have slept these last few nights, <laughs> but no, I read the whole books. There was a part of me that was like, no, I, I want to talk about these things, dagnabbit. And yet, because I was also quite pleased to have a, an A+. That was fairly easy. I was like, I, I the, after the long pregnant pause in which I had that internal battle, I just said, thank you, Mr. Holmes, and left the room. <laughs> and I got my A on my Lord of the Rings project. And since then, I think I have read the Lord of the Rings at least one once more, if not twice more. So I have I've read the books at least three times, if not, if not more. And, uh, and so for me, I, I do, I have vague recollections of the animated movie. I am one of those nerds who is a, what's the word I'm looking for? Snob <laughs> about books and movies. It really took into my late adulthood, really, uh, just, I want to say the last few years that I've come to accept the idea that an adaptation is its own thing. And that mm. it that takes mm -hmm. skill to make a good adaptation and that an adaptation is not necessarily just a bastardization and a, and a paler, uh, bad version of the original source material in books. In other words, it took me a long time to not look at every movie adaptation of a book as like a lesser creature mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, because I tend to prefer to read the books first whenever I can before watching a movie because I want to see the original. I want to read the full source material 
I will confess my teenage daughter has kind of uh, inherited that snobbery <laughs> and she always complains about movies uh, being a pale imitation of the books. I will, I will say this movie trilogy that we are about to watch together broke the mold in terms of that snobbery oh, yeah. because yeah. it did such, uh, especially the extended editions, does such a lovely, wonderful fan service job of providing an almost comprehensive adaptation of the story that it's just uh, that I remember when these movies came out, it was one of the first times when I was like, this is adaptation done right. These are the movies I've always wanted. I love these movies. <laughs> and when they announced that the availability of the extended edition, I was like, first in line, sign me up. I will own and watch these hours upon hours of film because it's just, it, it, it was clearly uh, a labor of love that, uh, that Peter Jackson produced Indeed. these movies. Indeed. So I'm excited to watch them. What about you? Oh, <laughs> that's an understatement here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're going to pause our recording here. We're going to watch The Fellowship of the Ring, the extended edition, and then we'll be back for our live rewatch reactions right after this. So if you want to uh, follow, play along at home, and you have an entire weekend to blow on <laughs> watching a movie trilogy with us, pause the podcast here, go watch The Fellowship of the Rings, and join us after. All right. We're back. Hey. What is it? It's now, we started that at 10.30. And uh, between a little, a little break to make some lunch while we move from DVD 1 to DVD 2, it's now 2.15 in the afternoon. And we just finished watching The Fellowship of the Ring, the extended edition. So before we begin uh, our uh, reaction, uh, just provide some info facts just to uh, get those out of the way. The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Rings, was directed by Peter Jackson, screenplay by Fran Walsh, Philippa Boyens, and Peter Jackson, based on The Fellowship of the Ring by author J.R.R. Tolkien. This movie was produced by Barry Osborne, Peter Jackson, Fran Walsh, and Tim Sanders, starring Elijah Wood, Ian McKellen, Liv Tyler, Viggo Mortensen, Sean Astin, Kate Blanchett, John Reese davies Billy Boyd, Dominic Monaghan, Orlando Bloom, Christopher Lee, Hugo Weaving, Sean Bean, Ian Holm, and, of course, Andy Serkis. Although in this film, it's basically just some creepy little hands. <laughs> no, no he, does, he does say... Uh... Yeah, Baggins, Shire, Precious. <laughs> That's true, he does. Yes, he does. Uh, cinematography by Andrew Lesney, because, let's face it, New Zealand is a co-star of this movie, and <laughs> all of the movies. Yes. Edited by John Gilbert, music by Howard Shore, and music, I don't know, some of it might, you still, you might still be hearing some of the credit sequence uh, playing in the background here, but... The music for this movie is there was something about the like the uh, the the there are certain movies where the music just is just the 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 composer just created something so iconic and beautiful and and connected to the source material. You know we've 
We've talked about Back to the Future. We've talked about Jurassic Park. We've talked about the Avengers. And, mm-hmm. you know, there are certain themes in Lord of the Rings that carries through all the movies where you yeah. just, you hear those themes, those notes, and you know exactly what it's about. Hey, definitely. So well done, Howard Shore. Uh, this was produced by New Line Cinema and Wingnut Films. Distributed by New Line Cinema. It originally released in the U.S. December 19, 2001. December 19, 2001 in the U.S. And had an original running time of 178 minutes. On November 12, 2002 was when the extended edition was released on VHS and DVD with 30 minutes of new material, added special effects and music, plus 19 minutes of fan club credits, totaling to 228 minutes. The original budget was $93 million, which seems like tiny compared to today's <laughs> blockbuster superhero movies that cost $250 million. That takes a tenth of that. Just a tenth. 1% even. 1%, yes. 1%. I'll take 1%. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, box office, $898.2 million, so it has done just fine. I can tell you $7 of that came from me. <laughs> so... Uh, Having just watched it, for the for the sake of the folks who, unlike us, did not have half a day to watch a <laughs> long movie, uh, Jeremy, I give you five minutes to do a recap. Go. Five minutes. Five minutes. Go. <laughs> okay. Uh, Bilbo has a ring. Of course, everybody knows about Bilbo's ring. And uh, surprise, surprise, it is his birthday. He's a hundred and eleven years old. And uh, he's like, you know what? I'm tired of this. So he, he, he knocks off and leaves, slipping on the ring so that he uh, can leave uh, undetected. Gandalf confronts him and says, Bilbo, your ring is still in your pocket. And he's like, darn it. And uh, so he drops that on the ground with a, a resounding thud. A couple minutes later, his uh, nephew Frodo walks in the door, says, oh, dude, he left his ring. And uh, Gandalf says, yeah, that, that ring, you need to keep it safe, bub. That, that thing's kind of crazy. Uh, I gotta run. I'll keep see. I'll be right back. Keep it secret. <laughs> keep it, keep it, hidden. Keep it secret. Keep it secret. Uh, he's like, I'll be, I'll be right back here. I gotta go Google some stuff. So he takes off, and uh, a little while later, he comes back and he's like, "Whoa, I think this ring might be even crazier than I thought." Throws it in the fire. Frodo's like, "What the heck are you doing?" He pulls it out, drops it in Frodo's hand. So, hey, that ain't hot. Hey, oh, it's it's good. It, nothing on there. Oh, wait a minute. There's stuff on there. Gandalf freaks out and says, you need to get out of here like today, Holmes. So uh, he, he finds that's, out that Samwise Gamgee is... That's the is, halfway mark. Two and a half minutes. Go. Oh, Samwise is hiding by the window. Uh, grabs Samwise, throws him and says, you're going to follow Frodo. They're like, okay, cool. Uh, and then they run away and fa- they, they run into uh, a, a toque and... Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Dad, I got too fast. They run into a couple of hobbits. Then they uh, they find themselves um, in uh, uh, the Prancing Pony, and uh, we have Strider grabs yeah. them, says, "Hey, people are after you. They're gonna kill you." So drags them along. They uh, they wind up getting uh, surrounded by the Nazgul. Nazgul stabs Frodo. Oh no, he's gonna die! Drags him off to uh, to Rivendell. Uh, heals him up in Rivendell, and uh, says, "Oh." You have my axe. That was Gimli. And uh, <laughs> so then they start dragging across the, the town uh, or the, the, the countryside. 
get attacked by orcs and uh, in, inside the mines of Moria, and then uh, running away from more orcs and everything like that along uh, a bunch of rocks, and then wind up in uh, <laughs> Galadriel's country. Galadriel says, get out of here. Uh, I'm not going to touch your ring now. Okay, bye. So they go down a river, get attacked by some more orcs. Frodo and Sam are like, you know what? We're out of here, dude. And uh, yeeted themselves across the river. Meanwhile, uh, Pippin and... Uh, 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 Mary. Mary. Yes, thank you. They're like, oh no, we got kidnapped by orcs. And uh, that's where the movie ends. Well done. That was four minutes. <laughs> four minutes. Oh, I've got another minute there? There was a, there was a slight... Oh. Slight unevenness to the amount of detail for various parts of the movie. <laughs> you gave me four minutes to give a synopsis on one of the greatest epic movies of all time. Uh. I know, I'm all right, so, so let's talk about it. We just watched it. It's amazing. Uh, it is. It it is definitely amazing. Uh, I although I will say. And I, I think it's probably the fact that we're watching this on a DVD on a PlayStation 2 because my <laughs> PS4 is not, not cooperating well with the extended edition. By the way, this is the 2003 extended edition. Oh, all right. So this is uh, way back in the day. Vintage media. Vintage media. Uh, for Just for all you youngins out there, a DVD is very much like a Blu-ray, only uh, a lot more fragile and you can't put as much stuff on it. And if you don't know what a Blu-ray is, it's like a streaming movie on a piece of shiny plastic. Okay? There we go. <laughs> Anyhow, I I don't know if it's just because it's on DVD and it's not remastered or anything like that, but it it does seem like it's a little bit rough around the edges as far as some of the uh, the special effects and the CGI. You know, I was I was impressed with the fact that the only time I was bothered by it, I think they were really smart in in the strategic use of CGI. Yes. That so yes. much of the film was done practically. You know, the, yeah, the, yeah. the amazing creature and makeup work. Oh, the, yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the incredible, evil, ugly way in which the orcs and mm -hmm. the goblins and the Urukai and all of the all of the evil creatures. The amazing uh, work in how evil and nasty and uh, and real they looked, uh, combined with you know, I was also I I was not at all bothered by the uh, the way in which they handled the uh, the hobbits being half the size of the humans. No, you know, no, I, I yeah. thought I thought the way they did that, and I think at that time it was like force perspective and camera yes, tricks yeah. and all of that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, yeah, it was all I practical it, effects. I thought that held up. Beautifully. The only time that I was like, ooh, that did not age well, was when Galadriel got a little, like, uh, was tested when Frodo offered her the ring and she goes a little, a little like, uh, you would not have a king, but you would have a queen whom everyone yes. would love and despair. And, it, and then and she the turns, dog. she turns like, uh, green and, and goes a little, a little almost skeletal in in shape i thought that the cgi there was a little uh, yeah was a little cringy but uh but other than that it, it's so good and i think a lot of it has to do with the fact that so much of the story is really about uh is about this journey i mean i was oh, reflecting yeah, yeah. on the fact that 
this movie is sort of it's 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 a <laughs> to, to to use a completely different genre. It's it's a roadshow movie. You know what I mean? It's a, it's a it's a road trip movie. It's a, it's a, yes it's a, yes know, it is. The 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 whole point of the movie is that they've got to get from one place to another place. Yeah. And and so the the purpose of the movie is the journey. And I was reflecting on how few big epic adventure movies take time for the journeying anymore. You know yeah. what I mean? You think of big action adventure movies these days and you kind of cut from one place to another mm-hmm. without any sense of travel. You know, it's right. often like you're just cutting from one from one set piece to another. You know, the, the modern day movie, it's like, you know, it's just you cut to a new city, new cityscape, and on the screen comes the letters, you know, like, now we're in Cairo, now we're in this, or now we're in that, and, and it's like, let's get to the action. But in this film, uh, you know, so much of the story itself is told through the travel and through the yeah. relationship of the characters and through who the characters are. I, I definitely agree. And they, they I, I think this movie could really be the definition of what Epic really is. You know, it it is grand without being overwhelming. It mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. Uh, encompassing without being too caught up in detail. It's got just enough detail where you can get immersed in the story, but it also doesn't bog you down with a whole bunch of stuff. And I know that there's a lot of people that would get upset about their... There are some things that they left out of the book in the movies. And, you know, honestly, you can't tell the story in any reasonable length of time and still include those details in there. There's no way to really... uh, A good way to to, uh, say that... You know what? It was 15 years after Frodo left, or uh, Bilbo left, before Frodo decided that he needed to leave. You know, there's no way that you could tell the the scale of time in there uh, without it being tedious and, and just kind of boring. Well, it's also interesting you mentioned the scale of time, because yes. one of the first... Because I, uh, you, you sat back and enjoyed the movie. I, of course, being an academic nerd, couldn't do that entirely. And so every now and again, would pick up my phone and do some <laughs> tippity tapping with my thumbs while I was taking notes. But the very first note that I took at the very beginning of the movie was that this movie begins with what most would call an extended prologue before the movie begins. Mm-hmm. That sort of sets this this story in its broader historical mythic context right right right? right. and so the it makes the point and and you know it talks about uh what the the rings being forged it talks about the 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 rise of sauron it talks about the first war of the ring rings of power and and how um what's his name Uh, is is Isildur, you know, sliced off Sauron's fingers to retrieve the Ring of Power to defeat the armies of darkness so that a new age of peace arises. All of that kind of stuff, uh, as I was watching it, well, A, it's it's really fun because Lord of the Rings as a franchise, or or, or what what really might be more properly referred to as the Middle Earth franchise, Mm -hmm. um, you know, now has new material, new adaptations in the form of the Amazon Prime TV show, The Rings of Power, which is telling the story from 3,000 years prior 
of where the rings came from in the first place. The fact that the prologue puts this, you know, begins this three movies because it was always going to be three movies. It's the Lord of the Rings trilogy of books. Right. Um, you know, it, it put me in mind of the idea that uh, these, this book, these stories, this universe. You know, we talked in our in our sequels and series of things about how certain movies exist in their own universes of with their own, you know, histories and origins and that sort of thing. J.R.R. Tolkien as an author, you know, really, really was one of was one of the first modern authors who did that whole world building, what 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 in in, in modern epic fantasy is referred to as world building, right, where it's right. a whole universe that has a whole sweep of millennia of history uh, in it, this this story is placed in that. And it really reminded me of the idea that uh, that stories don't really have a beginning and an end. That stories, right. wherever you start telling a story, is almost arbitrary, and it's not like the, a real beginning of something, because something always came before it. Right. And that, that, you know, there was all this stuff that came before it, and now we're going to dive into this moment in the overall history and even at the end of the last one, there will be history. The the story continues. Mm-hmm. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And yeah. uh, and and that that to me indicates that this the another reflection I had watching rewatching this movie was these stories really do tap into mythic archetypal kind of I don't know what do I want to say like like energy like like ideas, like like structure, such that you could tell that the intention, J.R.R. Tolkien's intention and Peter Jackson's intention was to create sort of a timeless mythic story that taps into universal themes. You know, mm-hmm. the themes of, of good versus evil, the, the themes of choice and free will, the theme of temptation, the theme of corruption and power, the themes of um, of love and and how important love is. You know, we we got the beginnings, the seeds planted in that of the the romantic love of Arwen and Aragorn, the uh, the friendship love between Frodo and and Samwise, the the love of companions in the Fellowship, and then how that Fellowship is broken through uh you know through the weakness. And the temptation, the falling to temptation of Boromir, the the idea of of choice that as in Lothlorien, the the second of the elf forests that they visit, where they get to meet Galadriel and they receive their gifts. At that time, both Frodo and Aragorn are sort of represented with their choice. You know, mm-hmm. oftentimes individual stories are presented as like. The hero makes a decision, okay, I'm going to do this thing or I'm going to go on this quest. And then the rest of the story, it's a given that they're right, going to yeah. do it. But I think I think part of the ways in which this is mature, this is real, is that the characters have to reaffirm that decision. And they stumble in the decisions. You know, the whole thing with Boromir and, and how, he, how he was tempted the whole time and then ultimately fell to that temptation and then tried to redeem himself through glorious mortal combat. I I think one of the things that makes it such a good story is that Tolkien wrote his characters as 
not just flawed characters, but deeply flawed, like like tragically flawed characters, where there is uh, something about them that would spell doom for the entire story if it were left up to them. And I think the, that Frodo, if Frodo went off on his own, his flaws are that he is unwilling to accept the help from others uh, because he views himself as uh, strong enough to do it. But in reality, he is a very, very weak character. And I don't mean weak as in he's just, you know, he's not a uh, a character not that, that has... strength. Yeah. You're talking about strength of character. Yes, strength yeah. of character. Strength of he, will, perhaps. Yeah, and, and you see that that he will... He was willing to give up the ring to basically almost anybody that asked for it, with the exception of Boromir. You know, he's like, here, you want it? Do you want it? Do you want it? Please take it. I don't want this responsibility. Yeah, about three times in the movie, he says, yeah. I really wish this hadn't come to me. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. It, and, it, and that prompts Gandalf's famous reply of like, you know, no one put in these positions wants them, yeah. wants these things to come to them, but that, uh, but it's, it's, it's what you do when presented with yes. these kind of situations. Yeah. That's what determines, uh, you know, that's what, that's what makes the difference between, you know, heroes and villains and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I agree. But also the, the, the flaws of some of the other characters. Um, you know, we see that Frodo tries to do things on his own. Well, Sam won't do anything on his own at all. Mm -hmm. You know, and personally, I think Sam is, is probably the, the hero of the story. But that's my, my personal yeah, opinion. Yeah, well, I noticed very much the very first time the Ringwraiths find the four hobbits by themselves and they're yes, hiding yes. out under the hollow log and the first ring wraith is sort of like literally seems like literally sniffing around above mm -hmm. them uh frodo comes dang close to putting the ring on which would have spelled disaster because the ring wraith would have known exactly where he was at that moment uh instead it's sam who kind of interrupts uh frodo's temptation to do that and kind of keeps him from putting on the ring and if sam hadn't done that the whole story goes kaput you know, the, the yeah. Dark Lord has yeah. the ring and it's all done. Well, even in the books, though, with, with Sam, uh, especially later on in the story, uh, Sam is one of those characters that just refuses to give up. Um, he's and the embodiment of hope. He is he the is, incarnation he, of hope in this movie. He's also the story. only one that, that comes in direct contact with the ring that doesn't ultimately let it control him in any way. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he, he recognized that he had to wear the ring for a specific purpose. And once that purpose was over, he was like, he did not want to have anything to do with it again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, even in the end of the, the, the story, the, the very end of, you know, Return of the King, when Frodo had that choice, you know, Frodo hesitated. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But he wouldn't have even gotten that far if it weren't for Sam. Absolutely. I think That's, I think we'll return time and time again take. to yes. all the examples of how Sam, you know, Sam makes the the happy ending possible yes. for the whole thing. Yes. You know, absolutely. I noticed something during this watching that I'd never thought about before. What was that? <laughs> there are interesting ha the story of Harry Potter mm. and 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 the 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 seven books, the Harry Potter and the books 
have very interesting echoes of the Lord of the Rings. Uh, and I'd never and I never noticed the explicit uh, connections before. But if you think about it, Sauron is called the Dark Lord. Yeah. Voldemort is called the Dark Lord. <laughs> Voldemort can somehow kind of knows what's going on. Uh, Sauron has the eye. the The other explicit one was, oh yeah. So the the relationship between the Ring and Sauron, mm-hmm. the fact that Sauron, while struck down and while his body was struck down in battle. Because his spirit was bound to the ring, as Gandalf explained to Frodo in this movie, as long as the ring exists, then Sauron exists. It's like the ring was the original Horcrux. Yeah, I was going to you know? say so. Because Voldemort, <laughs> Voldemort can't be killed unless you destroy all the Horcruxes. You know? It's like it's like J.K. Rowling just made it bigger with seven instead of one ring to rule them all. It's seven Horcruxes to keep him alive, you know? Yeah. And I just, I've never made that connection before, but it's totally the same kind of deal. And, uh, and likewise, the idea that, the idea that the Dark Lord can't be defeated unless a fellowship uh, of allies come together. And while there is one individual who has a unique and self-sacrificial role in mm-hmm. the defeat of the Dark Lord, i.e. Frodo in Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter in, in that in the Wizarding World, both Frodo, neither Frodo nor Harry would succeed except for their friends. Yeah. Except yeah. for their allies. They, except they, for the the you know their fellowships. They both try to go off on their own because they think that they are the only ones that can do it. That's right. That's um, right. And, and, and in that, both stories, their friends are like, no, man. Yeah. <laughs> you can't do this by yourself. It's, there's a certain amount of hubris in being the the uh, epic hero. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I love the, I'm going to Mordor alone. Of course you are. And I'm going with you. <laughs> I love Sam. Sam is awesome. I think we're going to get a chance to see a lot more of Sam in uh, in uh, Lord of the Rings, the the second one, the Two Towers, the Two Towers extended we're... edition. Yep, we're gonna we're gonna roll right into it in this yep. our extreme marathon weekend double feature Saturday. We'll see you in three and a half hours. <laughs> Man, that was a wild ride. I definitely love the two towers. That was that was yeah. The extent I forgot that the extended edition of the two towers is uh, nearly four hours long. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was that was. Uh, I I will confess there were a few times I had to shift position and change seating just to keep my eyes open because uh, that's a that's a that's a long journey. There and back again. <laughs> uh, I'll I'll tell you what also uh, is is going to be long, but not that long. You have five minutes to give me a synopsis, Jerry. And three, two, one, go. All right, Lord of the Rings: The Two Towers. We take up, we pick up the story exactly where we left off, in which Frodo and uh, Frodo and Sam have broken away from the Fellowship and made a commitment to go off to find uh, their way into Mordor by themselves. The fellowship is broken. Boromir is dead. Um, Aragorn and Gimli and Legolas go off in search of the kidnapped, go hunting orcs in search of the kidnapped, Merry and Pippin, who were taken by the Urukai of 
what's his name? So Saruman. So so we now move into the classic point of view shifting uh, throughout the rest of the movie as we come to find out. I'm going to take each thread in turn. Uh, Sam and uh, Frodo ultimately kind of uh, figure out or notice that Smeagol, that Gollum is following them, kidnaps Smeagol, convinces him to be their guide to, since he has come out of Mordor, he can show them the way into Mordor, but they are on their, they make their way to the Black Gate, where they see the ginormous gates open and close, but decide not to make their way into Mordor that way, because uh, Gollum says that they will never make it, and knows a different way, but and while they're on their way to the different way, they are kidnapped by Faramir, the brother of Boromir, and the men of Gondor, who take them uh, to the falling city of Osgiliath, where uh, Frodo almost puts on the ring while facing down a Nazgul, only to be saved once again by Sam. Faramir, while initially wanting to deliver the ring to his father to prove himself to the father that never believed in him, uh, does ultimately, in witnessing the, the corruption of the ring, the temptation of the ring, seduction of the ring toward the evil, uh, decides to let Frodo and Sam go. So basically they are making their way back toward Mordor uh, once again. The story of Merry and Pippin is that Merry and Pippin uh, escape from a battle, escape from the Orokai with a uh, during a battle with the riders of Rohan who kill the Orokai, and they then flee into the forest of Fangorn where they meet Treebeard the Ent. Uh, they hang out with Treebeard the Ent, uh, who goes and gathers the Entmoot, who then eventually, slowly, they decide to go to battle, and the Ents uh, free the river and tear down Saruman's. Uh, machinery of war at the tower of um what's his tower's name isengard then uh while aragorn and uh gimli and legolas track the hobbits determine that they have gone into the forest they then uh meet up with gandalf now gandalf the white who guides them instead toward the toward Edoras and the Golden Hall of Rohan, where the king of Rohan, Theoden, is under the sway of Saruman through the whisperings of Grimma Worm Tongue. Gandalf frees Theoden. Theoden then decides to flee from Edoras uh, before the hordes of Saruman, where they go to Helm's Deep. At Helm's Deep, it looks as if all is lost until the archers of uh, Rivendell, the elves, come to join the men. And then again, when all seems lost, Gandalf arrives with the further riders of Rohan, Eomer, who was earlier uh, wrongly exiled, but then uh, is returned with Gandalf to save the day. Helm's Deep is rescued and as Gandalf says, the battle for Helm's Deep is over. The battle for Middle Earth has just begun. How'd I do? That that was that was pretty good. But you needed to put a little bit more panache in that. If I could put panache in it, you could put panache in it, Jared. <laughs> I'm feeling panache shamed right now. <laughs> you did manage to get it in five minutes, though, which was that's that's pretty impressive. All right, there we go. So that is what we just witnessed. I, Spoiler alert! After the fact. <laughs> 
I one of the things that and I told you that I was going to mention this as we were uh, getting ready to to record this. Uh-huh. The Wilhelm scream in the middle of the fight for Helm's Deep was <laughs> that was inspired. Yes, yes, yes. It was that was quite a quite the moment where one of the warriors of Rohan go flying off the the giant wall only to ah the Wilhelm scream. You know what though. One for those things- for those not familiar, the Wilhelm scream is a classic uh, uh, sound effect used by movies the world over and time immemorial uh, to indicate a death scream. <laughs> Although I, one of the things that I, I could definitely tell when making this film is that uh, the actors had they had had a, a lot of time to be together, so they got a lot more comfortable with themselves. And you could see also that the the writing and everything uh, it got a little bit more comfortable using Gimli as that comedic relief a bit. Um, yeah, being the middle of a trilogy, often the middle is the darkest. You know, the yeah, the it's yeah. it's when it's when everything you know goes kind of dark before the uh, before the the final part of the trilogy that brings things back. And yeah, they about the only thing they used to combat the darkness was jokes. Featuring Gimli, <laughs> yeah, uh, made by Gimli at Gimli's expense. Uh, sometimes one and the same with that. The the whole thing where he's like, "Toss me, but don't tell the elf." <laughs> <laughs> no one shall I, ever hear of it. <laughs> and and it, it just it had a bit more fun in it, especially since you know with with the uh, Fellowship of the Ring was more of a story building thing. It was much more uh, about the setting the stage, setting the story, setting all of that stuff. Instead, it, this one was more of about let's build on let let's make let's make this world a lot more comprehensive. Let's make it uh, more immersive, and then let's also show the sides of these characters that we have spent the the previous four or five hours, ten hours, it seems. Uh, building them up and let's show them their side that they are not just the uh, two-dimensional, you know, I am a dwarf, I, I I hack at rocks and, you know, I'm an elf, I'm an excellent shot. Oh, look at me, I'm a king. <laughs> they were allowed a lot more, uh, <laughs> a lot more fun than what it used to be. I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, well, anytime you get into the second part of the story, the second, you know, uh, the second uh, movie, the second edition, you know, yeah, I think you're right. I think everybody sort of uh, falls into place a little bit more and and they're more comfortable, etc. What struck me was how much, you know, we talked about how the first movie was kind of a roadshow movie, a a travel movie, road trip movie. Yeah. This movie really... Uh, I the thing that I noticed and that I uh, that I wrote most of my you know uh, nerdy notes during was the idea of this this ad- this edition sort of featured tropes that are classic to epic fantasy storytelling. Mm. Anyone mm-hmm. who uh, you know if you've ever if you've seen the Two Towers and then you go out and you go read any sort of epic fantasy novel series, right. you are going to find familiarity in, in the many elements that you see. 
And, uh, you know, so whether it be, and, and even not even reading epic fantasy, but even now watching more epic fantasies, it's become more of its own genre in, uh, you know, in movies and television. You know, I'm thinking about like Game of Thrones. Um, now Amazon Prime has adapted Wheel of Time. Uh, they did a movie version of Aragorn, of uh, Aragon, the the dragon rider. Mm-hmm. That yeah. it wasn't very good, quite frankly. <laughs> but some of those tropes, I just I'll just I'll just rattle off a quick list, and then we can talk about any any of that you want to talk about. Uh, the mysterious wizard who knows more than he shares and speaks in riddles. Uh, the wizard who falls to evil but then returns. Uh, the journey during which the heroes grow up or grow in power or grow to accept their power and their role. Some of those were were from the first movie, but specific to this movie, the dark advisor who whispers in the ear mm. of the king, corrupting him to undermine the kingdom. All I could think of while I was watching this one was Jafar. Anyway, <laughs> uh, the tracker who could read the smallest signs to follow what happened after the fact, reconstructing events. The cursed or enchanted forest with its protectors and its memory. The untrustworthy guide or servant that you just know will betray you, but does good just enough to keep you guessing. Um, The place with the dead that want travelers through that place to join them in death. You know, the, the, when uh, Gollum and uh, Frodo and Sam travel through the, 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 bog that has all mm. the corpses in it that mm-hmm, call mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that call out to the characters um uh, a character returns from the dead transformed uh the point of view this and this one's classic a point of view jumping from character to character or character group to character group woven together as the large number of characters all do things uh, simultaneously advancing the larger story. So the fact that we jump from the trio of Frodo, Sam, and, and Gollum, and then we jump over to the trio of Aragorn and Gimli and Legolas, and then we jump over to uh, you know to Rohan and what's going on there, and we jump over to Faramir, and and also we get some backstory. So there's some flashbacks as well. The younger brother spurned by his father, but outshines his older brother in character. Uh, in other words, he was implied to be born of this adverse ad, adversity or unfair treatment. In other words, you know, Faramir is spurned by his father for the supposed disappointments, and yet he turns out to be the the brother who lets the ring go and does the responsible thing. Uh, the gathering of allies, especially at the last minute and arriving just in time to turn the tide of the great battle to provide for victory. And then, of course, um, very classic trope, all seems lost when the only thing one can cling to is hope. And just when all seems lost, something happens to turn the tide, whether it be the allies arriving or a clever stratagem is is executed or the hero rallies everyone to that hope uh, to, to bring folks to victory. All of those things can, all of those tropes that I just mentioned, those, those, those ideas, those stereotypes, those machinations, etc., um, all of them appear over and over again in fantasy literature from whether it be, you know, um, Arthurian legend to uh, modern epic fantasy to TV shows, like I said, like Game of Thrones. You know, I, I, I very much was remembering my watching of Game of Thrones when when watching the Battle of Helm's Deep because Helm's Deep has this mythic giant battle quality that many of the battles in Game of Thrones also have that giant mythic 
quality to them in that in you know in that series and utilize those same kind of tropes of like all all seems lost and then an ally appears at the very last minute you know those sort of things how about you what did you think rewatching <laughs> two towers did i miss anything no i don't think you missed anything with that i although i would hesitate to call them necessarily tropes especially since so many of those were uh almost original creations of tolkien Tolkien was really the first great epic fantasy writer. Um, and a lot of his uh, writing was born out of his experiences uh, in World War One as an ambulance driver mm. um, and being involved with the front lines and things like that. He, he saw that hell landscape that all hope is lost. He saw all of that uh, and lived it, which is even crazier. So that's it, a good point. The, it would it, be more accurate to say I recognized things that have become tropes. Become tropes, yeah, yeah. That that really were originated by Tolkien and brought forward in the Lord of the Rings uh, uh, novels. Because you're right, the Lord of the Rings is sort of like the 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 patriarch, the godfather, the 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 progenitor of all <laughs> epic fantasy. Yeah, and, yeah. and I, I would hesitate to say that he did it the best. But it, it, because it is that great epic story that he told, uh, I would have to say that if it's not the best, it is definitely one of the absolute best examples of it. Um, and I know that there's a lot of fantasy stories out there that kind of build on it, expand it, give their own little twist about it. But there's something uh, not just classic, but iconic about the mm. way Lord of the Rings tells its story and about the way Tolkien was able to bring the world to life in such a way uh, where those those things became tropes. They they almost became staples of, of the, uh, the genre. But mm. at the same time, they uh, don't feel like they were forced in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, Absolutely. Yeah. When I when I list these these things and call them tropes, I don't mean to disparage them no, in any no, way. I think they are. Not I think they all. are. They are endemic of the storytelling. I think they they are effective. I think you know. I I I think they they don't feel at all manipulative. I think what has happened is there there have been those who follow after Tolkien who take up these ideas these tropes as i've called them and don't do as good a job and then they feel manipulative they feel you can see them coming a mile away or mm -hmm. you're kind of like oh okay i know what this is i know what's happening here yeah, whereas i see i see what's going on that's yeah. right that's right whereas the really good writers might still use the tropes but they do it in a in a new or a fresh or an original way that mm -hmm. you don't necessarily see coming and 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 works you know a trope is a trope because it makes sense because, because it functions it yeah. because it works yes yeah. exactly right now exactly I, right. I wonder uh, you know obviously we were not there when they filmed this and they they storyboarded it and they wrote it uh, but I wonder if if they had the same conversations about you know is this too much of a trope you know or you know does does it ever feel slightly cheesy you know I wonder if they had those conversations and how do we combat those things that and in a way to make it seem like it is fresh? Because even when this was done in the early 2000s, they they were 
by far not the only kid on the block that that used these uh the, these machinations you know mm-hmm. I, I wonder mm-hmm. how that those conversations actually went you know not the stuff that's shown in behind the scenes or with the commentary or anything like that but how it really really happened in those in those rooms i i would have loved to have been a fly on the wall yeah yeah absolutely and and you can you can tell just from the quality of the product of the final you know of the final yeah. storytelling that yeah. that enormous care was taken that it be done uh that it be done well and that mm. it be done seriously yes i think yes. the only other thing that i wanted to that i wanted to make sure we at least mention or talk about is the smeagol golem of it all yeah you know the 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 amazing performance of Andy Serkis yes, in, yes. in providing the voice and the, you know, and the, the machinations and the, the, the physicality and just the, the wonderfully complicated uh, psychology of that character. And the fact that in this movie in particular, we get very explicitly how Smeagol and Gollum are kind of a split personality. It's like they, they've done a, uh, you know, it's, it's like, the Smeagol has like this dissociative personality disorder in which Gollum is split off and Gollum is a, is one personality and Smeagol is another and they're talking to each other and the beautiful the beautiful way in which they captured that visually in that in especially in that in that cave scene in which uh you know Smeagol and Gollum have a conversation with each other about whether or not to serve Frodo and and what that means and Smeagol ultimately winning out and and asking Gollum to go away and Gollum does and Smeagol is happy for a while and uh you know and then ultimately Smeagol feeling betrayed by Frodo because he's captured by the men of Gondor that clearly uh Frodo was a part of that and so Gollum kind of comes back over Smeagol and I and especially in that first first scene uh in which Smeagol asks Gollum to go run away and then also in the scene between Frodo and Sam, in which Frodo kind of criticizes Sam for always calling names or always being down on him. And you can really tell there's the the that trio, there's the they're playing with that idea. They're they're really exploring the idea of do all intelligent creatures deserve a certain amount of respect? Do all, you know, do does does the corruption of evil mean that a that a creature is sh- loses that uh worthiness of having a certain base amount of respect you mm. can really i mean with frodo especially you can see that he's between sam and and gollum and and he's really feeling and wrestling with that whole there but for the grace of god go i kind of feeling of like he recognizes this is going to be me if if you know if i held the on to this thing right. if i wore this thing for as long as he did that would be me and so he has this empathy for gollum that sam is just without and yet and yet frodo's empathy for gollum kind of calls forth our own empathy for gollum in a way uh, or at least yeah. for Smeagol, maybe to speak well, more more precisely. But at the same time, when you look at at Sam's motivations with that, Sam's motivation is not to be cruel. Sam's motivation is is to protect uh, Frodo. That is th- that's been his intention all along. And unfortunately, the frustrations and and, and this the stress of the situation 
uh, has put Sam in that situation where that he took it out on the only thing that he could because he obviously couldn't take it out on Frodo. He took it out on on a creature that he saw as despicable and, and despisable, and it would ultimately just cause him harm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, I think he also might have seen that uh, there might not be a, a, a what am I how am I saying this there might not be that that chance that Gollum will uh, that Smeagol will fully redeem himself and that he might be just biding his time until he can strike mm-hmm. uh, until he can get his precious back oh yeah I think and I think Sam is wise in terms Sam wise uh, in yeah, terms I was gonna say that <laughs> <laughs> I think he is wise to to question and to always be suspicious I think what what Frodo was concerned about was more like the manner the 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 manner in which he because the only thing that Frodo criticizes him for is calling him names which yeah. is just sort of a sign of disrespect as opposed to right. Frodo never criticizes like keeping an eye on him or like keeping him close or like making sure that you know that kind of thing not trusting him but it's yeah. more that disrespect of calling him names. Mm, I have yeah. one last question, okay. a thought that popped into my head when we were watching it just this time. Do you think that because they make so explicit the split personality between Smeagol and Gollum, I wonder, the a thing that came to my mind was, do you think that split personality so explicitly predates his torture in Mordor? Or do you think it was the torture in Mordor that caused the complete dissociation. Because because mm. if, if you know anything about, you know, because my rudimentary psycho-semi, you know, pseudo-psychology <laughs> knowledge is that uh, a dissociative personality disorder or multiple personality, you know, syndrome or whatever you want to, whichever you want to call it, is usually, is often the result of trauma. Right, right. That, that someone experiences so much trauma that they have to split the the one who receives the trauma and another personality, a protector personality or a stronger mm. personality emerges to kind of handle that trauma. And I thought it was interesting that these movies sort of situate the Smeagol-Gollum split, situates it after it's been clear that he has been tortured and tormented and then escaped from Mordor. I wonder how much of I, I I'm just I'm just not mm. sure, and I'm asking the question. I'm curious about if you have any thoughts about. Do you think that explicit split where they would talk to each other in that fashion uh, was a result of the torture in Mordor, or was just that's what happened because the ring corrupted him over years, and it was just and and it was just there, and the torture in Mordor really didn't affect it that much. So I, I think um, I think it was probably my my personal thoughts on it is that it was a result of 500 years, a thousand years of, of being corrupted by the ring because that kind of mental torture by by an object that is so powerful that it literally will, you know, destroy a body in the mm-hmm. way that it destroyed golems, but also sustain it. I think that coupled with all of the stress of everything that had occurred between the start of the trilogy. It was further reinforced with the way that Faramir treated him, 
you know, you, you could see in the scenes where they beat him and kicked him and threw him mm-hmm. against the wall. Yeah, I noticed um, that too. And, and with very little regard for the fact that he was an actual living creature, all they saw was this this gross, disgusting, basically piece of trash that, that could move on its own. In the context so, of the movie, though, the treatment that he receives from the men of Gondor kind of reinforced that idea that it was the torture, that it was the physical, okay. that it was yeah. the physical torture that manifests the dual personality because it's after the torture. It's Faramir's watching him after he's been yeah. kicked and yeah. beat up by the men of Gondor that Faramir listens and overhears Gollum having one of these split personality conversations with himself in which the tables turn. Smeagol kind of took over and was dominant when, uh, when in the earlier cave conversation, mm-hmm. when Gollum goes mm-hmm. away and Smeagol celebrates, now under the torment, the torture, the physical torture of the men of Gondor, Gollum gets the upper hand and becomes dominant again. And so at the end of the movie, we can we can see that that inner conflict, the turmoil between Smeagol and Gollum and specifically the relationship with Frodo, uh, you know, is is back uh, full force where they're arguing with the with them, you know, within himself. He's arguing, should we you know, should we right, serve right, the master? Yeah. Should we betray the master? Should we serve the master? So, should we betray the master? Um, I think all the the power of the ring ultimately was the one that caused it, though personally, the uh, because he he always has referred to himself as us and we and you know. Oh, that's uh, a good point. So, so I think that was always a part of it. And then when someone showed him a modicum of of kindness and and decency is is when the Smeagol part was allowed to actually kind of come anywhere near the forefront. Ooh, so, so here's a thought I ju- that just popped into my head. All right. Do you think that the Gollum personality is Sauron then? No, I, I because, think I think it would because the rings the rings it. but but the rings Sauron's spirit is bound to the ring. Sauron doesn't have a body. Sauron desires to return. The ring wants to be returned. Gollum is just a name that came from the sound that he makes right, with his yeah, throat. Yeah. Whereas the we and the us and the we should betray him, we should bring the ring, you know, we right. should have the ring. That, uh, you know, I wonder how much of that is like if he got the ring, that would be Sauron. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, all you see initially with, with the story of Gollum that... Uh, you know, one of the, the he murders for it. So do you do you un you know, uh, do you blame that on Sauron when he just had I mean just the tiniest tiniest of an air interaction with the ring, you know where he's willing to kill for it or was that part of his innate nature? But it was just something that was buried. So I don't know if it's necessarily part of Sauron or whether it's anything that we could even recognize in that way. Like before we talked about the Horcruxes. Uh, and and mm-hmm. how the ring is is like Sauron's Horcrux, you know, in uh, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Uh, Ginny was influenced by Voldemort, I but she of that was too, not. Yeah. She was not Voldemort herself with that. Um, but it might have been just enough of a, an invasion in the mind that you could potentially call it Sauron, but maybe maybe not. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's interesting. We're we're getting kind of deep with this yeah. too. So, 
Well, we've been watching these for a while. So because this was such a monolith and uh, it, we had honestly forgotten how much time it actually takes along with life getting in the way, what we're going to do is we're going to end this episode here and then uh, next week we'll return to our regularly scheduled uh, program and we'll be discussing Teen Titans Go like we said last week. <laughs> um, and, then, uh, and then we will complete our Lord of the Rings trilogy and... Um, Ultimately, a lot more discussion on uh, the the Tolkien universe and the the world of the rings. So, ah, oh, man, I've been sitting too long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got some time to stretch. Yes. Uh, just a reminder for those who don't want to go look it up uh, or listen again to our special announcement from earlier in the week. Our Wheel of, Wheel random, of random episode, episode selection. selection provided us with season four episodes 20 to 25 of Teen Titans Go. So that's season four episodes 20 to 25. If you would like to listen to what we will specifically discuss in our Teen Titans Go episode next Friday. Thanks for listening, everybody. As always, we encourage you to join the conversation. Send us an email at feedback at twoguysinafranchise.com or just visit twoguysinafranchise.com where you're always welcome to comment on the episode post on the website. Were you going to spell that out, Jerry? No. Don't worry. T-W-O-G-U-Y-S- a N D A franchise.com <laughs> for all your two guys to franchise needs. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, and uh, I hope your week and your Thanksgiving is nerdy.